You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Deputy Director for Faith in Action, host of Prophetic Resistance podcast, where he engages multi-faith leaders in conversations about cultivating communities of belonging and sacred resistance to injustice. And he's also the president of the Alliance of Baptists and co-editor of Trouble the Waters, a Christian resource for the work of racial justice. Joining us all the way from San Jose in California, Reverend Michael Ray, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. It's wonderful having you here. There's so much I could ask you. Let's start with the easy question. What is Faith in Action? Faith in Action. Uh, we were formerly called PICO National Network. A lot of people still un- recognize that name. We are an international network of faith-based organizations. We're in four countries and in about 25 U.S. states. What we do is we engage congregations and communities in grassroots organizing. We develop leaders and we organize the collective power of those leaders in communities and congregations to change policies, to change systems, and to improve life and well-being in communities. And when you're saying change systems and policies, you're not just talking about within those places of worship or those faith communities, are you? No, we're talking public policy. We're talking about changing the policies that affect people's lives at the city, the county, the state, and even the federal level. I mean, it's extraordinary work. I mean, it it sounds so enormous. Are there specific areas that you like to focus on, either personally or as a group? So many, many of the issues that our communities work on are, are really discerned in that local space. Uh, what are the real pains and needs um, that exist in a particular community? And where are people finding, you know, common stories that connect them to this pain? And what do they collectively want to do about changing the way that policies and institutions and structures have been situated in a way that, that produce this kind of pain? Uh, for people. A lot of our work began at the very local level. We were founded in 1972 by a Jesuit priest named Father John Bauman, who actually still works with Faith in Action. He runs our international work in Rwanda, El Salvador, and Haiti. Um, He really worked with local communities, and we were very hyper-local for a very long time, and it really wasn't until around the turn of this century that we began to um, expand our work to look at state level policy and collaborate across local organizations in a given state. And then in about 2004, we decided to launch our first national campaign, which was focused on children's healthcare. Um, But we've, we've organized around immigrant rights, we've organized around mass incarceration, we've organized around uh, police brutality, we've organized um, around education reform, Um, mental health justice, whatever issues are most pressing in local communities, and that might aggregate out to states and and the federal level. Those are the things, those are the issues that we tend to spend our time um, organizing people around. 
it's, it's quite extraordinary how much you do. And it's fascinating to me that you come at this from a faith perspective. So maybe it's worth asking, what, how does the story of your own family and your own faith, how does that inform your leadership in these social change movements? Yeah, I like to say that um, I'm a child and grandchild of the Great Migration, the Great Migration of an estimated 6 million African-Americans who defected from the South, heading to places in the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West. Um, that happened like from 1915 to 1970. Um, that's two years before my mother's father was born in Butts County, Georgia, um, and two years after I was born in Hollywood, California. Um, but the people, the communities, the congregation that raised and formed me they were all the like protagonists and products in the Great Migration story. And I always understood their story as a child to be about searching for better job opportunities. Um, and it wasn't until I read the book, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, where she talks about and explains what the Great Migration is all about that I, and I got my mother to read the book and got her, my mother to get her cousins to read the book. And we had some conversations that, the truth and the stories that are at the heart of why my maternal family left Georgia for Ohio and my paternal family left Louisiana for Los Angeles, they all involve stories of terror. Um, the terror of being accused of disrespecting white supremacy. Um, and so there were jobs and opportunities in Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago and Los Angeles but there was also the real reality of their safety um, and trying to get safety um, in the midst of the imminent threat of lynching and the Jim Crow South. That way of uh, understanding my story, you know, adds a kind of social and political lens to, to the story for me. I mean, it helps me think about my faith in those terms, because I now realize that the people who raised me in an historic Black church in Los Angeles um, were products of the Great Migration. And they were folks who, on the one hand, were interested in a robust relationship with God, but who also understood that their lives as people of faith and moral courage were connected to the uh, well-being, the health and well-being of the community around them. And so I, I feel like I'm the, um, I'm the heir of a prophetic tradition that is rooted in a lot of uh, pain, but also rooted in a vision of being able uh, to overcome injustice. T tell me more about that vision, because that seems to be what's driving you. And, and we keep hearing more and more, and I, I think it's fair to say that American society is becoming much more aware of the fear, of the horror, uh, of terror, to use your word, that a mm -hmm. lot of people experience that a lot of Americans may not have realized was so real. Um, but I see sometimes people struggle, they, they're made aware of that terror, but don't know what to do with it. So what is the vision that drives you? I think the vision that drives me is to understand that it's possible not only to imagine a different future for our communities, but to actually work towards that future. Um, this past year, just as the pandemic was beginning to loom, I found the records of my third great-grandmother on a Georgia slave record in 1850. 
I also found her son on a Georgia voter roll dated 1867. And both of these discoveries were happening in the same year that we had a census and an election. So because of census records in the late 19th century, I found these ancestors of mine on a slave record and a voter roll. And it, it, did, it dawned on me that I was actually reading the story, the journey of my family and its relationship around voting, around access to that franchise of being able to participate um, in an election. And it helped me recognize that the struggle that I see um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, people of color struggling for in this moment is not disconnected from the struggle of their ancestors 153 years ago when my second great-grandfather registered to vote uh, to 150 years before that when our folks were, were all enslaved. So I, I am mindful that I, what I'm doing by participating in social change is I'm participating in an ancestral practice um, of trying to cultivate beloved community. And so I don't feel um, disheartened as much because of what we're facing. I feel encouraged because I'm reminded that this too was the struggle of my ancestors and they kept the faith and they kept working towards um, a better future for me. And that I now have a responsibility to descendants of mine, biological or not, 153 years from now, who will be trying to make sense of the world as it will be then. And hopefully we'll find some wisdom, some transgenerational wisdom um, that will guide them. You lead me to a, a really interesting question I've never really considered before. The, you, when you talked about standing up to the terror of white supremacy and you're talking about the transgenerational learning and this very powerful story that you've just shared about going back in generations and then looking forward in generations. Is this an eternal struggle? In other words, is the world getting better? I mean, people often quote Martin Luther King who quoted and in turn and abridged the idea of the moral arc of the universe bends long, mm -hmm. but it bends towards justice. Yes. But, but is it in human nature to, for some to oppress and to, for some to liberate? Is it, do you feel like the world is getting better and we are making steps? Or do you feel like you are holding this current um, conflict, challenge, resistance, maybe that's a better word, this current resistance, and the next generation will have their things to resist, um, and each generation has their calling to resist? Um, so I, I guess the question is, is this an eternal human struggle, or is this a larger connected journey? Hmm. I think it is both. Um, I do think that there is a journey and an arc that is a part of our experience as we read history. Um, and perhaps maybe it's not an arc, but maybe a spiral <laughs> where you keep coming back to a similar landscape, but you're at a different point in history looking at that landscape. I'm saying that this is what, this is what I've wrestled with this myself. And this is the language that works for me as I try to make sense of what's happening. Because I do, I do have this sense of things being different um, and things moving forward in a certain kind of way. 
But I'm also very clear that 153 years from now, my descendants will be wrestling with this in some form, in some fashion. I also think it's a, it's a, um, it's a testament to the ways that human institutions are subject to the accumulative impact of like narratives and structures that, you know, that, that give those institutions life. And so all of our institutions are sort of susceptible to becoming oppressive in some way. And because human institutions are, are like that, then I'm like, yeah, we, we will have to continue to cultivate beloved community in our bodies, in our relationships, in these institutions, and in the broader culture. Because there's something about the ways that um, you know, narratives and structures operate almost in very unconscious ways um, that kind of set us up. We, you know, my, you know, my mother didn't raise me to find myself in the streets of Ferguson in 2014. You know, my, I was born in 1968. It was the year that Dr. King was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated that year. And despite all of that, my mother still believed that I would see a different world than she grew up in, in the 50s and the 60s, and that I would have opportunities that would be without the kind of racism that she had to face. And when I called her to tell her that I was going to Ferguson, in addition to being very afraid of what could happen to me there, she was reminded that, wow, we are still doing this. We are still fighting for our freedom. That's an extraordinary answer. Thank you. We have to take a break. When we come back, I'd like to continue. Maybe we'll start talking about Ferguson and the theology of resistance that sure. developed there. So we're going to take a quick pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. And my guest this evening, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Deputy Director of Faith in Action, host of the Prophetic Resistance podcast and co-editor of Trouble the Waters, a Christian resource for the work of racial justice. And we'll be back after this break. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Deputy Director of Faith in Action, host of Prophetic Resistance Podcast and co-editor of Trouble the Waters. Before our break, you gave this extraordinary answer about the um, spiral nature uh, of history and, um, and mentioned Ferguson. And so let's Let's pick up there. How did how did that Ferguson experience for you? How did that shape this theology of resistance, which uh, I've seen you mention elsewhere? Certainly. Well, I ended up in Ferguson primarily because one of our uh, colleagues in the state of Missouri, that's a part of our network, called us when things sort of began to explode in Ferguson following the the killing of Michael Brown, and I was a part of a a delegation of faith leaders and organizers from our network who rotated in and out of Ferguson during that uprising. So like August, September, October, November. And I was there four times. And each time I went, I was, I was deeper, um, more deeply connected to um, understanding the pain of those in the community, particularly um, young uh, Black um, women and men uh, I, was, I was aware of the pain that they faced, not only in terms of their relationship with law enforcement, but their relationship with many other institutions that in some ways are almost arranged in such a way to create a certain kind of life for Black people in, um, in the St. Louis region. Not only was I confronted with the deep pain that these sort of institutional arrangements were creating 
uh, for poor black people in St. Louis County, but I was also becoming to, I was coming to recognize the role of the black middle-class church as an institution that was a part of that arrangement, that there are ways in which the middle-class black church could not see or fully comprehend how their own notions of what is respectable um, made it difficult for them to really see um, the people who were in pain in the communities. And so while we were busy organizing and calling the law enforcement community to repentance and renewal in their relationship with young people in our communities, we were also reminded that we had to call ourselves to repentance and renewal as the gatekeepers of these institutions, these faith institutions, we had to repent and renew in our relationships as well. As well. We had to make this new decisions in our hearts and our minds, new decisions in our relationships with young people, new decisions in how our structures and systems were going to interact and have an, and have an impact on young people's lives. We had, to, we had to think again about what it meant to co- really cultivate beloved community for everybody. I, 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 find it, I find this so moving and, and maybe part of why this is so moving is I, you know, I'm a white Englishman who's come to Santa Fe. Uh, you know, this, it's such a different religious experience. Um, you know, I can't go out and protest. If I do, I, I get kicked out of the country. Um, so maybe I need to become a citizen so that I can protest. And, and I hear what you're talking about. And I, I, I saw in some of your writing about what does it mean to be, you know, a faith leader with, you know, facing police, you know, using tear gas, rubber bullets and so on. What does that mean to be a nonviolent protester and have the, the institutions that are meant to protect us enacting violence and then having the institutions around actually uh, inadvertently supporting that violence or, mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or fostering the society in which there is that violence. And that clearly leads to this, um, th- this question that I saw in, in, in the first chapter of your book, you know, are you a chaplain to the empire or a prophet of the resistance? <laughs> and I, and I, I, I'm really struggling with this question because I think, I think it's such a profound question. What does it mean? I mean, maybe especially in light of Ferguson, but maybe in a larger context, what does that mean? What does that question mean to you? Are you a chaplain to the empire or a prophet of the resistance? What does that question mean to you and how do you answer that? Well, I would say that I am an aspiring prophet of the resistance, seeking to overcome the power of empire to make me its chaplain. That's how I respond to that question. And that question was first um, coined by faith leaders in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2014 as a part of a large listening campaign in the city, uh, a large listening campaign that meant to ask the question about what's the prophetic role of faith communities in this city. And the director, the then director of that organization brought that to a training that we used as a conversation starter for a training with clergy. And it was such a powerful, provocative, super binary question that, um, you know, we had a really deep conversation. And I felt so proud of myself as a trainer uh, for using this really provocative question. And two weeks later, Michael Brown was murdered. And that question came back to me and it was no longer a clever question to use for an icebreaker. It became a haunting question. 
about, no, really, who, who are you? And once I was in Ferguson and facing these young people and realizing some of them didn't trust me because I was clergy, I was like, well, Michael Ray, are you hmm. chaplain to the empire or are you a prophet of the resistance? So it was really that encounter with, with the stories and experiences and, um, and the bodies of young people um, in Ferguson that awakened in me a deeper desire to explore this question and to explore what it looks like to cultivate a conversation about a theology of resistance and to do that in a multi-faith way um, and even to create the Prophetic Resistance podcast. I, I might be sharing a lot about myself here. Um, the prophets in the Bible were able to resist empire because they didn't have an entire community to take care of. Mm -hmm. They were able to be, to, to hear the voice of God and to act and to inspire. And everyone else who could hear them could follow them if they chose to. Religious, so many religious communities today are organized as, you know, here is Temple Beth Shalom, for example. You know, we have 350 families, 800 people. And I would love to be able to go out and to, and to fight empire. But I also love being, I, I feel like I'm not, sorry, sorry, a, a prophet of resistance. I feel like I'm neither chaplain to the empire, nor prophet of resistance, but maybe like the shepherd of the flock. And, and you mentioned that binary model. And mm -hmm. I wonder, I, I wonder how can we get, maybe, maybe my question is, how can we help people like myself who are shepherds to the flock, but who also want to be prophets of the resistance, how can we help them to do both? Because sure. a lot of faith communities are organized around, you know, taking care of those who, we are, who are right here and now right. in the community, in need, visiting them in the hospital, helping them with their, you know, through life, through the difficulties of life. And, and how much time is there for institutional change? And we try to do that with the Interfaith Leadership Alliance here in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. how, how do you help people who are shepherds of flocks become prophets of resistance? You know, most faith leaders who get involved in this organizing are just like you. They're minding their own business or their own flock. Um, they're being faithful to the tradition. They're being faithful to their training. They're being faithful to their people. I'm a pastor. I don't pastor a congregation right now, but I have. And at my heart, at my very heart, everybody knows I'm, I'm not an activist at heart. I'm a pastor at heart. This question um, is a compelling question. This chaplain of the empire, Prophet's question, is a very compelling question to faith leaders who have been deep enough in their work to begin to see the power of narratives and structures shaping the outcomes of the very flock that they're taking care of. So I think it's possible to think about even pastoral care as a part of what it means to be a prophet of the resistance. I think there is pastoral care, like especially like through the Black church tradition, pastoral care is meant to heal the mind, the soul, and the body of Black people so that they can walk with agency in the world. And once you're walking with agency in the world, you are now in touch with your power to make difference in the world. So I'm always asking clergy when they wrestle with this question, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's an unfair question, it's super binary. Um, but it's very provocative and allows for us to go deep into conversations like this and ask, you know, what, is, what does it mean? Uh, to what end am I providing this 
kind of care and service and leadership in my faith community? Are my people ultimately um, experiencing more agency and power and joy in their lives? And is that not connected to how they experience life in the communities around them? So that's what I ask. I ask, because I think there are ways you can be a, a prophet of the resistance in the context of worship, a prophet of resistance in the context of the pastoral care moment, a prophet of resistance as it relates to how you administer and lead the business of your faith community. That's the real question. To what extent does, to what extent does our work actually prop up structures and narratives that hurt people? And to what extent does our leadership break down those narratives and structures so that people can thrive? And so you can ask that question no matter what your primary role might be. So this so moves me because everything we do creates a narrative and it perpetuates a narrative. Mm -hmm. We're all born within the context of not just maybe one narrative, but multiple narratives of place or faith or um, or family upbringing or color, you know, there's so many different, or sexuality, there's so many different narratives that we can belong to. So, so I, I really appreciate that answer because it reminds us that whatever we do, even if it is taking care of our flock, we're still establishing, maintaining a narrative or multiple narratives. And therefore, what is the narrative of the community, the, the, yes. vocal, the vocal narrative and how particularly do we change that narrative and develop yes. that narrative? Right. Does it give life or does it or does it actually end up taking life? Your conversation with Reverend Arnold was about that. It's about coming to terms with the way that anti-Semitic ideas sort of live inside of these Christian texts. And so how do you how do you as a as a prophet of the resistance choose to resist and combat, you know, the power of these narratives and teach and preach in a way that doesn't perpetuate anti-Semitism. And, and I mean, we've only got moments left, but, but I think hearing you, hearing you call to us again to say, assess that narrative. Is your narrative the narrative of empire, of mm-hmm. oppression? Yes. Is, even if it's unwitting, what is the narrative that you have bought into without even questioning that narrative you were you were born into and you chose to perpetuate? And are you hearing other people's narratives? Are you giving space for those narratives as well? I, I think yes. it's so important. Yes. Yes. I, 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 I've been so moved by this conversation. I, I really want to thank you for this. Um, I really hope that you'll be able to come back and share. There's so much more I, I want to ask about, about empire, about theology of resistance. In the last minute, I definitely want to give space for you to just share what is your prophetic resistance podcast, because I always want to help other people advertise their podcasts. Certainly. Thank you for that. So the podcast, of course, is is a, is a you know a, an outcome of the experience I had in Ferguson. I spent most of 2015 trying to make sense of what it meant to resist empire and how to talk about that through the lens of faith and through the lens of many different faiths. And so the podcast is meant to be a vessel to explore the stories of how diverse faith leaders make decisions to fight injustice, to spotlight both national voices that everybody knows, but also local faith leaders on the ground. And also in the past couple of years, been trying to interrogate even those two words that are the name of the podcast. What do we mean by prophetic? What do we mean by resistance? Um, do circumstances change the need to talk about prophetic or talk about resistance? And so it's been quite a powerful journey uh, for me to uh, cultivate this conversation, not only for faith in action 
faith leaders, but for a broader audience. I have listeners in Australia and, and around the globe now. So it's really, really exciting to be a part of that conversation with folks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Deputy Director of Faith in Action, host of the Prophetic Resistance podcast and co-editor of Trouble the Waters, a Christian resource for the work of racial justice. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, for challenging us this evening. I really do hope you'll be able to come back soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. Blessings and peace. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.